today. We're going to get a chance to see Paul's testimony here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and have eternal life. Now, to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. I love how, I mean, this is very common in Paul's writings when he writes about the Lord. When he, when, he, when he gives the attributes of God, he can't help himself but to break out in praise. Here he's talking about who he was and what God has done, and he cannot help but to call out in praise and worship as he ends this part of the passage. What we have today is Paul, as he does a couple of times in the book of Acts, he's sharing his testimony. In Acts chapter 9, we hear, we read about his conversion on a, the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, as part of his ministry, he shares his testimony. God commands us in Matthew chapter 28 to go make disciples. And before someone can be a disciple, a true follower of Christ, they must make a decision to make Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior, putting their faith and trust in him. We are surrounded by people <clears throat> everywhere we go. Every one of us is surrounded by people who have never made that decision. We are also surrounded by people who live their lives as if they have not made that decision. We're surrounded by people who give the impression that they would never make that decision. We're surrounded by people who give the impression that they could never make that decision. And for many of us, um, it can be discouraging. It can be heartbreaking. Because we love these people. We know them. We love them. And, and the worst thing that we can think of, the last thing we would ever want is for them to receive the eternal punishment that we all deserve for their sin. And sadly, that's actually what's in store for many, many people who will die in their sin. And so in our compassion and our passion and our zeal, not wanting this to happen, we can sometimes say the wrong thing at the wrong time. We can do the wrong thing in the wrong way. And it's not that we're wrong. 
It's just that we have compassion and passion and zeal and, and, and we get impatient and, and we can't get out of our own way sometimes and then we get discouraged and, and, and sometimes we can think, well, well, does God really care about them as much as I do? And the truth is, he does and so much more. In this passage today, Paul just gives us an example that we can use. He just tells a story. This is who I was. This is what God did for me. And this is what he can do for you. It really doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. There's two key words in these six passages, grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. Verse 13 says, I was shown mercy. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out and for that very reason, I was shown mercy. We were in a small group study experiencing God earlier this year, and um, we are talking about the importance of these ingredients being in the church, our church specifically, in God's church, of course, macro. And Isaac Jacobson leaned over to me, he was sitting next to me, and he leaned over to me, and he goes, those are superpowers. And they are. Grace and mercy are superpowers. Josh Ernst put the, puts it this way. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. But mercy is not getting what we actually deserve. So as we look at, at, these, uh, at this passage here, we'll, we've got uh, several ingredients, several considerations for us. The first is where does grace and mercy come from? Where do we get grace and mercy? I thank Christ Jesus. Simply put, now you, you may remember from the, the first message in, in 1 Timothy, Paul is the only one of the, the, the writers in the New Testament of the apostles that actually refers to him as Christ Jesus. Most of the other, all of the other apostles, uh, writers of the New Testament refer to him as Jesus Christ. And the thought process there is Paul didn't know Jesus before he knew him as Christ. His first connection with Jesus was on the road to Damascus. He knew him as Christ, the Messiah first, and then he got to know him as Jesus. Whereas the other apostles, they knew him as Jesus first. It wasn't until really after the, the resurrection that they that it really became real to them that he was Christ. So often you, we see uh, the other way around. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Grace and mercy come from one place and one place only. It comes from Christ. It comes from our Lord. It comes from God, very God. Peter in Acts chapter 2, full of the Holy Spirit, says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, What do we do? He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for your forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a promise for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's you and me. That's for everyone, for all 
whom the Lord God will call. Now, you can read some of this, and, and, and even here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and it says that he, he considered me trustworthy, he appointed me. You could very easily get uh, kind of caught up in a rabbit trail of wondering, well, well, did he choose me, or did I choose him, or, or well, what's this, you know, well, here, pre, you know, have I been predestined to know him, or well, what about the other people? You know what, here's, here's how I would settle that. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, he chose you. And you had to choose him. I don't, you don't need to dig any deeper than that. And if he chose you, and you chose him, then why couldn't he choose your brother? Why couldn't he choose your mom? Why couldn't they choose him too? Let's, let's not get caught up in irrelevancies. If, if, you know, that's not going to accomplish the work of God. And, and, and if you're wondering, man, could, could I, could, can I pray for my, my son who doesn't know the Lord? My son does know the Lord, praise God. Um, can I pray for my whoever? The answer is yes. Counter question would be, are you willing to take the chance? Are you willing to take the chance that, that your prayers don't matter? Absolutely not. As your pastor, I'm telling you, you take every opportunity to call on God for everyone that you have relationship with. Amen. Chapter 4, uh, Paul says it, or Peter says it again. Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected. He has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, and there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be Saved. Paul writes in chapter 10 of Romans, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is in your heart that you believe. That's where justice is served. It's faith and faith alone. But there's an action that follows. It's your mouth that you declare and profess your faith. Leads me to a second point to consider. Who needs grace and mercy? Who needs grace and mercy? Well, Paul says, I do. Let me tell you what I was like. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, and I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. So what is a blasphemer? A blasphemer is someone who slanders God. They openly, overtly, purposefully slander God or speak evil of God. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 11, Paul says, I punished them, meaning Christians, often, and compelled them to blaspheme. So he himself was not only a blasphemer, but he wanted everybody else to blaspheme God. His attack was, though, not just at Christians, not just at people. Actually, as, as Jesus confronts him in Acts chapter 9, he says, why do you persecute me? You see, Jesus takes that as a personal affront when we, as believers, are persecuted by others. So knowing Jesus is the Son of God, Paul then was anti-God, not just anti-Christ. As a blasphemer of God, 
he violates the first half of the Ten Commandments. Um, at the same time, he violates the second half of the Ten Commandments with the next two words. He was a persecutor. He was a blasphemer and he was a persecutor. So these are a direct offense to God. These are a direct offense to others. His goal was to destroy the church. In Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 9, we get a picture of him wreaking havoc in the church. He is um, breathing out murderous threats, it says, against the church. He was binding people up. He was dragging men and women out of their houses, throwing them into prison. He was murdering people. He was a mass murderer of Christians. It says he was a violent man. So this means there was an aggression that he had with no thought of human kindness. You could say he was a bully. So this is a a violent, aggressive person that causes him to mistreat and hurt other people just for the sake of hurting them. It wasn't that he was doing it necessarily for cause as much as he just got pleasure out of seeing people humiliated and suffering and even death. That's your apostle, Paul, before Christ. See, that's the need for grace and mercy in the extreme. You know, I read that, I write that, and I'm like, but I'm not sure I know anybody like that. Thank the Lord. I don't, I don't know that there's anybody in my circle that would meet that criteria. Thank God. But I think one of the reasons that Paul writes this, not only to, to encourage uh, and to, you know, to, I mean, it's not because he lived in that either. So, I mean, uh, a, a great uh, buzzword, if you will, in the Christian, Christian circles today is identity. I know my identity in Christ, okay? You put off your old, that's your old self. You, you, you are a new person, you're a new creation in Christ, and you need to live and walk in that. And so we read this, this like this, and we're like, so did Paul not know his identity in Christ? Well, no, he did know his identity in Christ. But I think there's something about remembering the pit from which you came from. There's something about remembering who you were that sets in a humility, not a guilt, not a shame, because Paul doesn't write shameful here. He's just saying, man, thank God for his grace and his mercy. Could also be, because this is right on the heels of kind of sandwiched, I guess, in between um, Paul writing to Timothy about the false teachers. Could it be that he's encouraging Timothy to say, hey, listen, you know, there's grace and mercy for me. You're going to need some grace and mercy also. And you got these people that you're having to go toe-to-toe with. Just remember what God did with my life. Because if he did this with my life, then surely he could do something with those lives as well. 
when we remember where we came from in a healthy way, then that can help us to open people up to their need. Um, you know, I know what I was like before I was walking with the Lord. I know my thoughts, I know my deeds, I know my actions, I know my words. And not just to people I didn't know. I mean, I know how I was with my wife before I was really following God. I shudder to think what kind of a father I would have been if not for my walk with the Lord. Many of you deal with that because you came to the Lord after a season of marriage and, and fatherhood or motherhood or whatever, and, and, and those, are, those are tough things. Some of you were raised by someone who was not walking with the Lord. That kind of, you, you know, you read this and you're like, you know, that was my dad. Or that was my grand, you know, there's somebody that you know that influenced me. Man, I'll tell you, that's tough stuff. I, my heart goes out to you. So how much grace and mercy is available? Look at verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Abundantly. How much grace and mercy is available? How much do you need? How much do you need? Because as much as you need is as much as there is. Paul needed an abundant amount. And guess what? He got it. He got it. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its evil desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in Mercy. Now, sometimes you need to slow down with your Bible reading and use the punctuation. But God, who is rich in mercy. And we could just stop right there. Praise God. He made me alive with Christ, even though I was dead in my transgressions. But that's not all. No, God, who is rich in mercy, doesn't just stop with grace and mercy. Look again at verse 14. Along with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Along with. God didn't have to pardon our sin, but he did. Thank the Lord. God didn't have to give us all of that grace and mercy, but he did. That would be more than enough but he didn't stop there. No, he gives us faith. He gives us love. You know, he doesn't give us those things just to hang on to. He gives us those things to give back out, just like we did yesterday. So what does grace and mercy do for us? Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. It's salvation. Grace and mercy very simply could be summed up in one word, salvation. Ephesians 2 again, but 
because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. The work accomplished through his grace and mercy is salvation. It is by grace, verse 8, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Grace and mercy are superpowers. Through them, death, spiritual death, is defeated. <laughs> Defeat, spiritual death. We get eternal life through the superpowers of grace and mercy. <laughs> and you can't earn it. You can't pay for it. There's no amount of works that you can accumulate to trade for it. It is by grace and grace alone that you receive salvation. Why? Why would God give us grace and mercy? For that very reason. What reason? I'm the worst. For that very reason, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Why does God give grace and mercy? Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him, would put their confident trust in him, would not perish, but would have eternal life. That's why. Why would the Lord be so patient, be so long-suffering with a vile, blaspheming, slanderous, persecuting, outrageous, pagan, Why would he be so patient while he watched his children mistreated and murdered and endure all of that? Why would he redeem that person and make that person an apostle and let him write 13 books in the New Testament who was the worst in the world? And there's no editor, there's no parenthetical phrase here that says, we, you know, actually Paul was just kind of having a bad day. His self-esteem was low that day. You know, he was battling anxiety and depression. And so really, he's not that bad of a guy. No, you don't have that in there. He could have, but he left it in there because it's true. Paul was the worst. Now there may have been and probably are people just as bad but none worse. He did it because he loves the world. And if he can save Paul, then he can save your dad, he can save your brother, he can save your sister, 
He could save your best friend from high school. If he can save Paul, then anyone and everyone is within reach of his grace and mercy. That's the truth. Now, Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, as I said earlier. Um, and before that, not only did he think he was do, wasn't doing anything wrong, he actually thought he was doing right. And he describes himself in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if somebody else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in themselves, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth grade day. Let, let's kind of use today's language. Very few people brag about being circumcised today. It's not, it's not that big of a deal, apparently. I was baptized as an infant. I went through confirmation. I took first communion. I, I've, I've done all of that stuff. Of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, I was born in the right family, in the right city, and raised in the right church, and my grandma was religious. I mean, I sh she prays. I, 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 I was, I, I get it. I'm in. I, I know because I was raised in it. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Hey, I can chapter and verse this all. I can run circles. I've heard every sermon. I've heard every pastor. I watch YouTube all the time. I don't need to be a part of this. I can do, I know, I this, all that. He's a Pharisee. As for zeal, how much do I love God? How much do you love God? I mean, I give to this, I give to that, I do this, I do that. Righteousness based on the law, I never murdered anybody. I think I'm a pretty good person. You see, in our humanity, in our pride, we think we don't need God because we're a pretty good person. And I think Paul thought he was a pretty good person, just like Isaiah did until he saw the king. <laughs> he saw what perfection was actually really like and then he really realized, I got nothing. The need is great today. It's greater today than yesterday. I'm going to invite the worship team to, to come up. Um, I want you to see some things. Uh, I've shared this several times over the last seven years since we started the church. Um, this particular statistic is from Barna Group, a Christian research company. This is a study released in 19, um, 2019. I don't know, do, do we have the criteria up there or am I just going to have to read it? Okay, sorry. We'll get it for second service. Here are 16 criteria. Just listen to these. You can take that off the screen so you're not stealing my thunder. Do not believe in God identify as an atheist or agnostic, disagree that faith is important in their lives, have not prayed to God in the last week, have never made a commitment to Jesus, disagree that the Bible is accurate, 
have not donated money to a church in the last year, have not attended a Christian church in the last six months, agree that Jesus committed sins, do not feel a responsibility to share their faith, have not read the Bible in the last week, have not volunteered at church in the last week, have not attended Sunday school in the last week. We could probably say, well, we can't say life group because that's the next one. Have not attended a religious small group in the last week. Bible engagement scale, low. Have not read the Bible in the past week and disagree strongly or somewhat that the Bible is accurate. And 16 is not born again. To qualify as post-Christian, post-Christian, an individual had to answer positively or negatively, however, meet nine of the 16 criteria, meet nine. To qualify as highly post-Christian, individuals meet 13 or more of the factors, 13 of the 16. Next, next slide here, this is the top 100 cities in the United States. Um, the, the previous one was the top 100 there we go. I've made it easier. The next one, you might say, well, where do we fit? Madison is number 11, and we are number 52. 52. With 43% of our population qualifying as post-Christian. Post-Christian. Interesting that Wausau and Rhinelander are a little lower on the scale. Even more interesting and stunning is that Milwaukee is lower than Appleton and Green Bay. Here's some additional statistics to consider. These are from Ignite America. The percent of young adults, 18 to 35, who have doubts or don't believe that God exists. There are a number of uh, of studies done through the years, the average they've given here, 61% of young adults, 18 to 35, have doubts or don't believe that God exists. Now then compare that to the parents. The parents of these people, 31%. So what does this tell you? That parents have not passed it to their children. And there's a number of reasons um, you know, one of the things that we deal with the most is church hurts, church disappointments. Oh, yeah? Well, if they don't want, then I'm out. Oh, yeah? I can't believe he said that. You know, the pastor wore jeans. You know, he wore, you know, the pastor didn't even think, he didn't shake my hand. You know, the pastor walked right on by me. He didn't say hi to me. Well, I tell you what, I'm out. You know what happens? Your kids are out. Worse yet, they never got in. I don't mind throwing some shame here today as a warning. What do they believe? Listen, look at this one. Percent of U.S. adults that believe in a cosmic force. The force. <laughs> the force? Really? 33%? And it's growing. I mean, that's five years old. 33% of adults believe in the force over God? What takes more faith, George Lucas or the Bible? Really? Why? 
probably because they had never heard. Look at this one. The percentage of Americans who attend church weekly, and this is a progression. So there's anywhere from a 10 to 3 to 10 percent negative from 2010 to 2014, an even higher negative from 14 to 18. And that's five years ago. Because these studies are released in 18, they're done in 17. And when we're talking about and, and has, would you say that church attendance and, and reliance on God in the last two years, let alone the last five, has increased? No. Well, I went shopping, uh, Christmas shopping in December of 20. And we were walking around the mall and we bought something and it was the first time in a couple of years where someone didn't say that I, that I like had this emphatic happy holidays versus a Merry Christmas. And I, it put me in a tailspin and I was talking about it with Sandy. There was just like this darkness hovering over and she said, you know, I bet that could have been your spirit grieving for what's happening in our society and culture today. Now, we know that church attendance doesn't mean salvation. We know that. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're saved. But here's a statistic that proves it. The percentage of churchgoers that are actually saved It's also declining. That means four out of 10 people, and we just kind of build, build an average, right? Four and a half of you think you're saved because you go to church. And oh, by the way, that number of people that are attending church is going down, down, down. It's stunning. This is stunning percentage of millennials that are confident that God exists also in the 40s declining percentage of millennials that have no religious faith at all in the 30s increasing listen to this by the end of next year millennials will bypass baby boomers as America's largest living adult generation between the ages of 23 and 38. 75 million adults in America. Millennials will reshape American culture and with it, America's religious landscape moving forward. Here's the challenge. Millennials are less interested in faith than all the previous generations. Let me say that again. Millennials are less interested in faith than all of the previous generations. Almost two-thirds of millennials are not sure that God exists and rarely, if ever, attend church. Even millennials that grow up in church are leaving the church by age 23 at this rate. You know, one of the most common questions that we have gotten 
often by people as they walk out the door, is why do you do the things that you do? How come we don't? You know, when I was growing up, we used to, in this, and you know, a lot of, hey, because first thing you swallow is what you digest. And you say, man, I, I long for those. Why did we leave Bell Street? And why do we do this? And what about choir robes? And why those hymns? And how come we don't have hymnals? And where's the organ? Can't even sell an organ today. You cannot sell an organ today because nobody wants them. There's such a thing called a 414 window. According to a 2015 survey, and this is still relevant, the National Association of Evangelicals found that 63% of Christians accepted Jesus Christ between the ages of 4 and 14. It's called the 414 window. This 414 window is not only the time when a child is most likely to embrace the gospel, it's also when they will form an emotional impression of church. Parents in the room, that's, that's another reason why it's super important to check your ego and attitude at the door. It's not about you. It's about the Lord, and it's about your kids. Not all children will receive the gospel during the 414 window. Some may leave the church during their young adult years, as we just saw. But one of the most important determinants of a returning churchgoer will be the quality of the deposit the church made during the 414 window. Talk about relevant. We got this email last night just got home from Pack the Pack, and I just wanted to say thank you guys for so much for everything you did for our family. The boys really had fun picking out their outfits and getting their hair cut and all the school supplies, unbelievable, and the food for our family. You guys are truly a blessing to our family. We plan on coming Wednesday night for the Back to School Bash. We also would like more information about the church. We are Catholic, but we can't attend mass like we should because our church doesn't have anything for the munchkins to do while we're in mass. We would love to be part of something. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart. Why do we have no city kids? Sunday and Wednesday. Because munchkins need to go somewhere. I don't preach to kids. We're PG-13 at best in here. <laughs> Why do we have youth? Why do we do the things we do? Why do we do the men's rally? Why do we do the OS nights? Why do we do those things? We do them to win the opportunity to share the gospel. And I'm so thankful for my seasoned adults in the congregation, because you know we don't do church for you. We do church for your kids and your grandkids because the need is so great. And I'll give you one more here before we close. This came from Billy Graham's ministry. What initially brought people to church? Six to eight percent walked in 
out of their own initiative. Two to three came because of a program. Eight to 10, like the pastor. <laughs> Should be way higher than that. <laughs> three to four had a need met by the church. One to two were evangelized. It sounds like something you do to somebody. It's, that's, you know, somebody preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel to somebody outside the church. Three to four attracted by Sunday school. 70 to 85% were invited by a relative or a friend. 83% came to church because somebody asked them to. I'll meet you here. I'll save you a seat. I'll come pick you up. Would you come to church with me? The highest probability today is they don't have a church. And you know, Justin, Pastor Justin, when he was here, he said, this is a great church. If you know of a great restaurant, don't you tell everybody? I do. Why don't you tell them about your great church? And the cool thing is, you know, you know every Sunday morning the gospel will be presented, an offer will be made, and people will be given an opportunity to say yes. That, that's like a staple. You don't, you don't ever have to wonder about that. You know it's going to happen. And so we make it that much easier for you. And if that's, if that's something you're afraid of or ashamed of, then perhaps you need to rethink, you need to have a brain shift because that's what it's all about. On your seats today, and we've done this for the last two years, we've, we've passed these cards out. These are prayer cards. And they're perforated in the middle. They're, they're designed to be duplicated. 2 Peter chapter 3 says, it's not the Lord's will that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no Jew, Gentile. There is no male, female. There, hey, it's all one. Doesn't matter where you came from. Doesn't matter what your race is. Doesn't matter what your gender is. Doesn't matter... None of that stuff matters when it comes to Christ because he died for you. He died for everyone. Salvation is available for everyone. Okay? First John chapter 5 says, this is the confidence that we have. If we pray anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And so we already know that it's not God's will that any would perish. It's not a big jump to go to, well, what is God's will? That all would come to repentance. And so we, are con we can be confident that if we're praying anything according to his will, that he hears us. And then he says this, and if we know that he hears us, then we know that we have what we've asked. So as I said in the beginning, are you willing to take the risk? So in this moment, as the Lord is doing what only he can do, is he giving you a name 
of somebody. I'm not talking about you judging them, but I am talking about judgment because judgment's coming. Can't go there. Who is it? Who's in your life that you can say with reason, reasonable logic, they need the Lord. And Lord, would you use me? And, and put their name on both sides of this card. You could put a family name. You can put a, a first and a last, just a first. You could put an entire family. We've had them all, all kinds. And then you tear it in half. You don't put your name on it. <clears throat> you put one in the mailbox. Or you can put it up here on the, on, the, on the stage, on the altar over here, whatever it is. Turn them in. Then put this one in your pocket. Put it in your wallet. Put it somewhere. Put it on your mirror in the, in the bathroom. Wherever you're going to see it, on, on your computer screen, wherever you're going to see it on a regular basis. And every time your eyes go to this, you pray. God, would you give me the opportunity to invite this person to church? Would you give me a divine appointment today to, to cross paths with them, to, to be a blessing to them, to say something that would be encouraging? Give, give me the opportunity, Lord, just to share my testimony. This is who I was. This is what God did for me. This is what God can do for you. And then we're going to pass these out on Wednesday nights, just like we pass out the prayer cards. And we're going to have special, specific prayer time for these names that you turn in. We're going to pray with you. You pray, we pray. Now let's see, as the rally comes along or the women's rally comes along or the 1031 party, listen, if we had 100 plus, 170 plus people coming to just do backpacks and, and do that, you know, we had hundreds and hundreds. If you were here last year in October, we had hundreds of families that came and they heard the gospel in the Mill City Kids area on 20-minute rotations. We, sh we had a, this year's Monsters, Inc. thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be awesome. Then we have Mill City Christmas. We have so many opportunities coming up. So would you, can we stand together as we close? I'd like for you to hold up this card. Maybe you've already filled it out. That's cool. Maybe you've already torn it. That's cool, too. Hold it up in the air. Dear Heavenly Father, God, you have chosen us. You have considered us trustworthy. And you've put us in your service, just like Paul. And you've given us example in Paul of somebody that was super far from you that needed an abundance of grace and mercy and you saved them. You saved him. You forgave him. You gave him as much grace and mercy as he needed. And you put him in your service. And you're still using his testimony today. And so God, in, in the name of Jesus, I am asking today. You burn some names into our heart. You've put them in our, in our sphere. You've given us relationship. And, and it's not our place to judge them, 
but it is our place to pray for them. And so God, we call on your name right now for our friends, for our families, for, for, for brothers and sisters, for moms and dads, for aunts and uncles, and for best friends from high school and, and co-workers and neighbors, those, those people that, that you're putting in our, our minds and our spirits right now. You've raised up a church that, that loves you and loves people and loves the life that you've called us to live. And so, Lord, we just pray that even today there would be moments, that next Sunday there would be a moment where there would be people invited that would come and that we would find true salvation, they would find repentance, they would find redemption that's only found in you. And I thank you in advance for what you're going to do in the coming weeks and months. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, perhaps that is you and you need that. You've just heard this. And you're wondering, wow, I'm, you know, I, that sounds like what I need. I need grace and mercy. And you may not be a murderer. You may not be a blasphemer or a violent person. But perhaps you think you're a pretty good person and you just don't really need what Paul needed. But the truth is there's no one righteous, not one person. All have fallen short of God's glory and are in need of mercy. Paul says he acted in ignorance. He didn't know. And maybe that's you. You're here. You didn't know. I didn't know that I needed that. I didn't know that I was dead and I would like eternal life. And, and for you, you know what? You're one prayer away from a right relationship with God. And if that's you, I'd just like to pray for it. Does anybody here, as we close the service, that you need... You need a right relationship with God. You walk in here today, you know, I don't have it. I want it. Can you please pray for me? Is anybody here today? Like for me to pray for you today? Lord, I thank you for the confidence that we have in you. I thank you, Lord, that uh, you love us so much that you don't leave us to doubt. You tell us the truth. And then you put us into your service. And so, God, I thank you for the opportunity we have had to be in your presence today. We lift up next service to you. We ask for your hand to be upon us. That there would be those, if they don't know you, they would come to that place today. In Jesus' name.